we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Did you know that brainwashing is good for your health? I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. These days, everything seems to be so contentious. War, political verbal sniping, no-fault theft, the incessant natter on multiple 24-hour news stations is unavoidable. The networks feed us a steady diet of bad news for the sake of keeping us glued to their stations. Our cell phones, once a miracle, have become a curse as people expect you to be available 24-7. Consequently, many people are chronically on edge and without knowing why. After the COVID lockdowns, people have remained isolated and lonely. One thing that we can count on to put it all behind us is a good night's sleep. Unfortunately, a good night's sleep is elusive for some people. Even our legislators have been caught napping on the job. Are impeachment trials and Senate hearings that boring? Or are representatives grossly sleep-deprived because they've been pondering national issues so much? Sleep quality and duration have dropped significantly in the past 50 years. At least one-third of people, and in some studies, 50 to 60% experience insomnia. Some folks with work-related reasons like shift workers or physicians on call are common causes of sleep problems. Some sleep scientists postulate cultural reasons for sleep loss, like stress, people overextending themselves, using social media at night, exposure to blue light from screens, and the like. And poor sleep quality leads to changes in cognitive function and decreased motor skills. One 13-year study from the National Interview Survey of U.S. adults age 18 to 84 found that low-quality sleep is associated with obesity, heart disease, diabetes, and early death. But on the lighter side, according to the Cleveland Clinic, Whales and dolphins literally fall half asleep. Each side of their brain takes turns so they can come up for air. And sea otters hold hands when they sleep so they don't drift away from one another. My guest today will discuss all things sleep, so please stay awake. Dr. Barry Krako is a board-certified internist and sleep medicine specialist who's worked in the field of sleep research and clinical sleep medicine for more than 30 years. He's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral health in the Department of Psychiatry at Mercer University School of Medicine in Georgia. Currently, he trains psychiatry residents in sleep disorders medicine and supervises their sleep medicine clinic. His most recent book is entitled Life-Saving Sleep. Welcome to the show, doctor. Thank you, 
Dr. Singleton, Marilyn, it's uh, great to be here. I look forward to a good discussion that won't put anybody to sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So how did you become interested in sleep disorders? I was uh, minding my own business, uh, trying to become a writer after I finished my internal medicine residency. And I ended up um, writing a story about a new treatment for chronic nightmares. And that then led me to start working with a group of psychiatrists at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. And this research was fascinating because it was a treatment for nightmares that had nothing to do with drugs and virtually nothing to do with psychotherapy. It was a very um, innovative technique. It's now known as imagery rehearsal therapy. And it's uh, the leading non-drug uh, treatment for chronic nightmares. But the segue went even beyond that because our research took us to a place where we wanted to study the nightmares and those with the worst disturbing dreams, which of course would be trauma survivors with PTSD. And that research done through the 1990s led us to a discovery that really knocked our socks off because we realized that so many people think that sleep is something that's all psychological and it's all in the mind. And although that does play a big role, what we learned in the 1990s, this is over you know, 20, 30 years ago, is that there's a physiology to sleep that is so much more important because it's often missed as the underlying cause of someone's sleep problems. Well, what is sleep? I mean, we talk about it, we all do it, but um, what makes us go to sleep? Well, sleep is a very natural biological drive that's going to allow us to regenerate ourselves the next day. You know, all you have to do is try to not sleep for one day to see how miserable you feel. Now, beyond that, We've learned some very interesting information over the last decade, which is phenomenal. And that is that the brain is more effectively cleansed or washed while we are sleeping, particularly in deep sleep. And that means that if you're not getting deep sleep, then your brain is not being effectively cleansed of toxic material that is in fact needing to be removed. And so now we believe that sleep, poor sleep in particular, poor sleep quality, is a potentially leading risk factor in those developing neurodegenerative diseases, including dementia. So this is a very, very big deal because if you take the average individual after the age of 40, who walks into the doctor's office and says, you know, doc, I'm starting to lose my memory. I'm starting to have some attention problems, some concentration problems. The doctors are often saying, well, welcome to the club. You're getting older. But really what we understand now is that sleep, bad sleep in particular, bad and broken sleep, as I like to call it in my book, Life-Saving Sleep, is actually preventing us from going through this brain cleansing. And so bad sleep is aging us faster than we normally would. 
Now, when you say bad sleep and bad and broken sleep, does that matter how many hours you sleep? If you had a good five hours versus a broken eight hours, which is worse or better? Well, it's funny because you made the comment in the introduction about the media. And here's another example of how the media follows conventional wisdom, which is, again, wrong. It's not about the number of hours you sleep. It's about the quality of the sleep that you get, which means that if you have really good quality, you may end up needing less hours than the typical individual who, in fact, is suffering sleep problems and may be craving more hours. The reason they're craving it isn't because they need the more hours by definition, they need to recover from the fact they're suffering from bad sleep quality. So that distinction between quality and quantity is huge. And unfortunately, the media and even many people in the professions of sleep medicine continue to harp on this idea of getting seven hours or eight hours. And I say to people, don't chase numbers. Don't chase trying to get more bad hours of sleep dig deep into what's going on with your sleep and find out what's going on with the quality. And the benefits are just unbelievable, which you can gain by fixing the quality of your sleep. It's interesting. As an anesthesiologist, I was on call for many, many years and up and down in the middle of the night. And it took me so long when I stopped working in the operating room to be able to go to sleep and stay asleep because you get used to being on call. We're like those dolphins and whales where only one half your brain goes to sleep. And now that I'm not on call, boy, when I go to sleep, it you could have knocked me out with a hammer and I don't wake up till I wake up. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. But you have to point to that, that intermediate phase where you talked about the recovery. We now know that shift work is actually damaging to our sleep cycles. And it's quite possible that a condition like uh, a shift work disorder, as we call it, can lead to changes in the physiology of someone's sleep and actually make them at risk for developing a sleep disorder such as sleep apnea. So there is something about sleep that is on the one hand very powerful, on the other hand very fragile, and individuals really have to investigate their own situation to determine why they're having sleep difficulties or why they're not waking up feeling refreshed. Well, okay, a lot of people can't sleep, so they go ahead and take sleeping pills. Well, what is it that sleeping pills do? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what they do either. Um, <laughs> they they knock some people out. Um they also uh, work on your memory system so that you can't remember that you were waking up all night long. But most sleeping pills and even, you know, um, sedating psychotropic medications often do not improve your sleep architecture. And by sleep architecture, I mean, you know, do you go into the deepest stages of sleep or do you stay in lighter stages of sleep? Many of these pills do not promote that. And so what we've published on several times 
and others are published on it as well. If you're a regular user of sleeping pills and you're not getting a very good response, it's quite common that there's an underlying physical sleep disorder, such as sleep apnea or restless legs and leg jerks, that's the real culprit. So unfortunately, people have gone down this pathway because the doctors, whether they're primary care, psychiatrists, prescribing psychologists, nurse practitioners, whomever, they pull out the prescription pad because they have never been trained to do something differently. And that prescription pad then gets pulled out for months, years, decades for many patients, and they never hear that there's an alternative which is try to figure out why the quality of your sleep is problematic and what can you do about it? Well, you you say talk about uh, pulling out the prescription pad. We've seen that that's only getting worse as these big health systems have taken over private practices and doctors are getting seven minutes, 15 minutes if they're lucky with the patient. So how do you get the patient out of the office fast? Pull out the prescription pad, write exactly. script. Exactly. It's, oh, it's sad. Yeah, it, it, it's very sad. And it, and it means that uh, most people, if they're going to have an opportunity to be able to work through in depth their sleep problems, they're almost never going to be able to do it in a primary care setting or even necessarily with a psychiatrist or with a psychologist. Um, they often have to go to sleep centers. But then again, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book. Sleep centers are often run by doctors who do not have specific training in dealing with insomnia or dealing with the complexity of insomnia where there is often, again, underlying physical problems. So it's a real um, uh, major area of concern not just for the sleep for the general population, but my book focuses a great deal on mental health patients who, of course, are the leading candidates for a prescription. And their providers know generally next to nothing about the complexities of sleep disorders in their own patients. Well, and worse is people are on so many drugs and uh now there, I see advertised on TV, since I don't write prescriptions for these kind of drugs, where they're talking about adding a second antidepressant drug if your first antidepressant isn't working very well. So you just pile on another drug that works a completely different way. And I I'm close my eyes and imagine what all those synapses and neurons in the brain are doing with all these drugs. Yeah, this is an incredible paradox because we know, and we published the first paper on this in JAMA in 2001, if you look at somebody's sleep disorder in their mental health condition, whether it's nightmares, insomnia, sleep apnea, restless legs and leg jerks, if you just focus on that sleep disorder in the mental health patient, you will actually get not only improvement in the sleep, but their mental health will get better as well. And I'm not talking about small changes. When we did one study on PTSD patients just by treating their nightmares with imagery rehearsal therapy, 
they had large improvements in PTSD just by decreasing or eradicating their disturbing dreams. Most mental health professionals don't know this angle. And so they keep thinking that the sleep is caught, the sleep issue is caused by the mental health problem. So if you're thinking that way, you're going to be thinking, let's do some more sedatives. Let's do some more sedating antidepressants, or let's just do more medication because obviously it's the distress that's causing the sleep problem. And the part that's really being missed big time is that the number of PTSD patients that we researched and others have researched the same point who have an underlying sleep apnea that's actually causing them to sleep so poorly is astronomical. We've done studies where it's 80 to 90%. Uh, Others have done studies where it's 50 to 60%. This is an enormous prevalence of sleep disordered breathing in a population that's suffering horribly from a very um, uh, unstable mental health condition, post-traumatic stress disorder. And yet they're not being referred on any kind of regular basis to get sleep studies and be evaluated for sleep breathing. Wow. Excuse me. When we get back from the break, I want to go into breathing and sleeping. And I'm sure we'll get back to some more on this PTSD when we talk about nightmares and other uh, problems with sleep. But so many people are on CPAP and have these breathing difficulties. So I'd like to do a deep dive in that after the break. Okay, everybody, here I am. Time to talk about my old friend, Cofix RX. Now, we know Cofix RX. It's a nasal spray that was invented during COVID. It's because its ingredients were found to be a powerful antiviral. The main ingredient is povidone iodine, and there's some xylitol. Both kill viruses, and it's just in the right combination. In the beginning, I used to make my own iodine concoction until this came up, and I know that this is the exact right percentage. The good thing about this, it's easy. It's just a squirt in the nasal spray. I like to use it after I've gone out and been in big crowds because I don't want to get a summer cold. You know, all viruses aren't COVID, and we're still going to get colds, COVID or not. And you have to look at this using this is kind of like using your airbag. You reduce the impact when that virus comes in through your nose, which most of them do, and helps nip it in the bud before it has a chance to get farther down your respiratory system. One wonderful thing I like about Cofix RX is that it was invented in the USA and it's made in the USA. You can get it anywhere. You can get it on our website. There's a little Cofix RX box you can click and uh, read more about it. See if you'll like it and if it's right for you. I know I do and use it all the time. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. 
For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Okay, back to the show. Before we took the break, I wanted to ask doctor about breathing and sleep because that seems to be something that a lot of doctors focus on. Can you talk about the physiology and how much breathing affects sleep? All those good things that I know so little about and I'm sure our listeners want to know. Sure thing. Breathing is the biggest deal in sleep medicine. It's just unreal how much influence this has on our sleep. Um, back in the 1960s and 70s, when sleep apnea was first discovered, they were only focusing on this one breathing event called an apnea. And again, because of the way conventional wisdom works, there's people who will actually say to you when you start talking about this, well, I don't stop breathing, so I don't have sleep apnea. Or they'll say, I don't snore so I don't have sleep apnea. But the research from the 1980s, 90s on showed that the breathing is much more complicated, just like we have so many different kinds of cardiac arrhythmias. We have different kinds of breathing events, and some of them are more obvious and some of them are more subtle. So now it's very obvious that even a small amount of breathing disturbance, as little as 25%, I say that kind of jokingly, as little as 25%. Can you imagine choking, you know, for 25%? You wouldn't, you wouldn't like it. And so these breathing events lead the brain to say, I don't like this. Either I'm not getting enough oxygen or I don't like the sensation of choking. And these function like mini suffocations and they fragment the sleep all night long. It happens for hundreds of times during the night. And this is why the individual feels so um, unrested, so tired and sleepy the next day, and then ends up having other uh, side effects from this that affect, that affect the brain and the heart in particular. And again, to repeat, this may have nothing to do with snoring. This may have nothing to do with stopping breathing. It's literally just compromised breathing that's very subtle. In fact, I like to say to patients, and people who are interested in this, if I was sitting in your bedroom watching you breathe, I could not tell whether or not you have a sleep breathing disorder. You would have to go into a sleep lab or otherwise take a test to actually have your breathing tested with very sophisticated sensors. Why is it that you couldn't tell if you were just watching me breathe and I look like I was breathing okay? Exactly. You could look like you're breathing okay and you're not. I mean, that that's phenomenal, isn't it? You would think that it'd be yes. something that simple, but it's not. There's a condition that a very famous doctor at Stanford, Dr. Christian Guimano, 
um, who recently passed away. He was probably the greatest sleep researcher who has existed to this point in time. And he discovered the phenomena that subtle breathing disturbances are just as damaging as sleep apnea. He gave it a name called upper airway resistance syndrome. And these are these events that are only 25%, again, I say only 25% of breathing, but yet the individual is awakened or aroused by it, and they still end up with the same problems, like they can get high blood pressure, they can get trips to the bathroom. This reminds me of a very important story that I wanted to get across, because I I often tell this. Um, In my early years of practice, when we opened up a new sleep center in Albuquerque, we had a patient come in who was a single mom, had two kids, school administrator, and she had had all of this difficulty in her whole life trying to work raise her children, was constantly having difficulties uh, with probations at work because she was always exhausted. She'd gone to two different sleep centers and they said, well, there's nothing we can find that you have that's wrong with you. Well, we were the third sleep center she came to. And I was fortunate because I had trained with Dr. Gimeno at Stanford 10 years earlier, and I knew all about upper airway resistance syndrome. But even the subtlety of that is still not captured by all of the sensors that we use when we test for breathing. So here's the here's what happened. She had a sleep study and I looked at her breathing and I said, well, your breathing isn't normal, but your breathing also doesn't meet any criteria that the scientific literature or even insurance companies um, would say you qualify for the diagnosis of a sleep breathing condition. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Let's have you try a CPAP machine. And her life was completely turned around. It was like an absolute miracle because she had a type of UARS, this really subtle breathing disturbance, that was almost impossible to detect with the sensors. And yet her response with the CPAP machine completely restored her sleep back to normal and led her on a pathway of a new, very invigorated life. Wow. Now, when you go to a sleep center to diagnose a sleep problem, what is it that they do to you? Well, (laughs) first of all, it's interesting about what they don't do to you. (laughs) Let's say you walk into a sleep center and you say you have PTSD, or you say, "Um, I'm not sleepy and I have insomnia, They're going to look at that patient, and I know this story from hearing it hundreds of times over the last 20 years. They'll go, why are you here? We're not going to test you. You're you're not overweight. You're not sleepy. You said you don't snore. You have insomnia. You have PTSD. Go see a psychiatrist. Or perhaps at that sleep center, there's a psychologist who works with what are called behavioral sleep medicine approaches. Maybe they would get that referral. But such patients often wait 10 to 20 years before they are tested for the sleep disorder breathing. So that's the first part of it. Now, those doctors who are becoming more educated on this model, which we call, by the way, sleep dynamic therapy, these doctors, including myself, are saying, well, wait, if you've had insomnia for 10 years and you've never been successful on your treatment, 
we're suspicious that you've got something more than just the psychological components of insomnia, of which there are many. Many people do get stressed out, and there are reasons why people develop insomnia that are in the mind. But when we would see these patients, we would hear their sometimes tragic stories and clearly frustrating stories and say to them, well, you've tried everything else that's failed. Why don't we do a sleep study? And that's what I'm hoping for more sleep doctors to start doing and for more in the mental health profession to start doing, as well as primary care doctors who are prescribing these antidepressants and these sleeping pills without actually having a detailed interview with their patients. Well, since you talked about the sleep study, and this is important for people to know, do most insurances pay for that? Does do Medicare pay for that? Yes, and that's what's so exciting about it. I mean, almost anybody who has some sleep difficulty can get some type of sleep study. Uh, nowadays, uh, ever since um, the pandemic and the way changes were made in care, sleep centers are moving more towards these home sleep tests, which is quite ironic because they call them a home sleep test, and yet it doesn't measure sleep. <laughs> it only <laughs> measures breathing. But at least it's a test, and at least it's measuring breathing. And so a lot of people who are nervous about going into a sleep lab can get a home sleep test. The unfortunate thing is the home sleep tests are not as accurate. They're not as thorough. They don't have all the sensors that you would get if you're in a sleep lab, but they at least can help find out when somebody has a very obvious sleep breathing disorder. Now, here's the downside. If the test of a home, a home study is negative, we want the individual to recognize they still then need to negotiate or bargain to be brought back into the sleep lab or back to the lab for the first time, I could say, so they get a better test to find out why that first test was negative. So false negatives can be very common in home sleep testing. Well, and, and that's good information to know. It's just like when people take home pregnancy tests, sometimes you get false positives, false negatives, so you still need to go to the doctor to make sure. Right. Now, so, let me throw let me throw out one more thing along these lines, just to be clear. And, and all of this is covered in my book, but it's so important to hear. This whole idea of sleep breathing disorders in, in people who don't suspect it, you know, they're not overweight, they don't have a thick neck, they don't snore like a freight train. Um, it's, it's really cognitive dissonance. And so when a person hears this the first time, it could be 10 times later before they go, well, maybe I really have this. Well, we've found a shortcut can really help individuals understand how this process is affecting their life and even find out tonight or tomorrow or next week. And that is, we call it early conservative sleep disorder breathing treatments. And what that means is this simple. When you have a sleep breathing disorder, there's a huge probability that you've got some problems in your nasal breathing. It's just extremely common. Uh, problems like rhinitis, allergic rhinitis, non-allergic rhinitis, other problems with congestion, runny nose, stuffiness, deviated septums, and large tonsils. It's so many people out there um, 
that are being evaluated by their doctors for sleep problems, but they're not asking these questions about their nasal breathing. So it turns out a person can have a sort of do-it-yourself program for a week, a month, a couple months, whatever they want, and aggressively go after improving their nasal breathing. So phase one could be nasal saline rinses. Phase two could be uh, over-the-counter or prescription nasal sprays like Sensimist or Astelin. Um, phase three could be using nasal dilator strips across the nose at night. And phase four could be um, nasal dilators that actually little plugs that insert into your nose to open up the nasal valves. And here's what happens. People who go down this pathway not only immediately notice improved nasal breathing, but they notice they actually are sleeping better. They're actually noticing an improvement in sleep quality. And if, you, if they put this together, they're going to go, you know what? If all of this is making me sleep better, then I must have a sleep breathing problem. And I think I want to investigate further. So that's what we've been doing over the last few years to motivate people because it's very jarring to hear about the idea of CPAP. CPAP is a, a non-starter for many people. Yes, and uh, that's why I was glad to hear these alternatives that people can work on and something they can do themselves. It's inexpensive and uh, before they have to go to CPAP. Well, in your book, you talk about PAP and CPAP. Can you spell out those initials? And we hear the word, those initials all the time, but a lot of people don't know what it stands for. Sure. Uh, let me just mention that on my website, barrycracomd.com, I have a free video series called The Nose Knows, <laughs> K-N-O-W-S. And that gives a lot of this information about the difficulties with nasal breathing. So the word CPAP stands for continuous positive airway pressure. And we stopped using CPAP in 2005 because we learned that this continuous pressure was very uncomfortable for most patients. In fact, it was so uncomfortable because we were specializing in helping people with anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, that we began switching them in 2005 to bi-level. Now, bi-level is also a PAP machine. It's still positive airway pressure therapy. But bi-level means that you breathe in one pressure, which is very easy. Almost anybody can breathe in with a PAP machine. It's not that big a deal. It's actually very comfortable and satisfying. It's the breathing out where the difficulty arises because you are still getting air coming in while you're trying to breathe out. And if you take a classic case of a PTSD patient who's trying to learn how to use CPAP, they will often respond and say, it felt like I was drowning in air. So that's how uh, traumatizing CPAP can be. And that's one of the main reasons we switched. So we began using these bi-level devices and then the technology advanced to something called auto-adjusting bi-level. And then there's other versions of uh, auto-bi-level called adaptive servo ventilation, which is a fancier uh, auto-bi-level device. And we have found so much more success with these uh, devices. We published one study uh, before we left New Mexico and moved to Georgia, where we showed that amongst uh, 100 consecutive patients 
who came to our center and went through all their testing and actually filled a prescription to try a PAP machine, in this case, the bi-level or auto-bi-level or ASV, 90% of them, six months or longer down the line, were still using their machine. And that's a very high number for people to be able to say that they're still using it. And the reason people would still be using it is only one reason. They're getting benefit. That's right. And it doesn't make them feel like they're choking. I mean, exactly. so many people complain about that. Well, when we get back from the break, I want to talk about some of the other things that people are really, they're burned with, like restless legs and night terrors and all sorts of things that you talk about in your book that are sleep disturbances and what we can do about it. So we'll get into that after the break. I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. You can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 p.m. with an encore at 10 p.m. That's Eastern Time. And on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. You can listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. One part I love about it is that all the shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeart, to name a few. So make it easy, bookmark americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. One of the things that our listeners like about the show is that there's a different person on every night of the week. I'm on on Mondays, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays, we've got Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesday, we have Dr. Peter McCulloch. Thursday, we have Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays are rounded out with Dr. Harvey Reich. And we've got Nurses Out Loud Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So we've got lots of medical information. We have sometimes all medicine, sometimes almost all politics, and or sometimes a little of both. So there's a lot for you to listen to. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. 
Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity, unlike other supplements that don't work. Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. Before the break, I was asking doctor, would he like to talk about some of these other problems people have at night, like restless legs and night terrors and sleepwalking, all sorts of things that happen to people at night. Can you go into some of these things in our last segment? Sure. We call it things that go bump in the night. <laughs> and uh, nightmares is how I got my start in uh, sleep medicine. Uh, it's phenomenally interesting area, but it's also phenomenally common. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that chronic nightmares are extremely common in children, young children. They peak around the age of four to six years old, where 60% or more of children will go through a nightmare problem during that age uh, range. Then in the teenage years, it spikes again. But in adulthood, um, as many as four or five percent of adults are actually living with a chronic nightmare disorder. And what that means is that once a week or more, they're struggling with the content of their dreams, whether it wakes them up or not is not particularly relevant. It's the distress that it causes. People with nightmares actually develop more insomnia problems. They can become suicidal. Uh, they can become more anxious and depressed. And so this research has been out there a very long time. And this is what prompted us to be involved in looking for ways to treat it. And I work with my two mentors at the University of New Mexico, Dr. Kellner and Dr. Neidhart, and they developed this original technique, imagery rehearsal therapy, as an offshoot of others who had been using imagery techniques dating all the way back to the 1930s to be able to teach people how they can re-script their bad dreams while awake and then have this impact on it during the night. But the most remarkable thing about the research, and it's been consistently found by close to 30 other researchers around the world now, that when you treat somebody's nightmares without drugs, without really psychotherapy, you're just teaching them how to directly target the bad dreams, their anxiety, their depression, and their PTSD get better. And there's a fair number of studies undergoing right now showing that, or looking at, I should say, that treating nightmares is likely to reduce suicidal ideation and behavior. So it's an extremely important uh, condition that most doctors in all fields are not asking their patients about. And of course, as you can imagine, nightmares are something that is stigmatizing and embarrassing. So an individual may not bring it up in discussion in a clinic appointment. You're right about that. People, I think a lot of people think nightmares, uh, well, maybe they believe some of the hokum that it's saying something deep dark about you and that you know it's the devil inside you or it's a very childish thing to have there's a lot of reasons people don't want to report nightmares 
Right. And it's unfortunate because it's a treatable condition. You don't need, you don't even need medication for most people to do it. I mean, the great advances are, and this has been exciting for our, uh, our research work and uh, my clinical work and, and the work I do when I train, do training workshops is that so many people in the military starting in the early 2000s were reporting the problem of nightmares that we went around to close to 25 different military installations in the US, um, uh, Canada, Europe, and you know, trained people how to do this IRT uh, treatment for chronic nightmares. And so in the military, IRT is very commonly used to help uh, individuals overcome the problem. Out side of the military, it's not as clear how often the IRT program is in use. It's very interesting. When I was in training in San Francisco, we had a military person come in to tell us about biofeedback. It was when I was on my surgery, uh, GI gastrointestinal rotation, and they used it a lot. And it was interesting because it was sort of on the cusp at the time, but they used it a lot because they wanted to get people back in the field quickly and found that uh, in six weeks, they could take care of some issues that with normal psychotherapy or even drugs would take months. So the military can be pretty forward thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now on to another thing that goes bump in the night is the restless legs and leg jerks, which is even more common than nightmares. Um, and especially as you get older, uh, which is not something I'm necessarily recommending, but uh, if you are aging, you certainly want to ask yourself if there's something that's uh, disruptive to your sleep that could be physical. And in this case, we're talking about a condition called restless legs and leg jerks. Restless legs is the condition that you have uncomfortable feelings in your legs while you are awake. And so you want to move your legs and it makes it sometimes difficult to fall asleep. The leg jerks is the more problematic condition because it's while you're sleeping, is while you're asleep. So you don't know whether you have it unless you're kicking the person who's sleeping in bed with you. And sometimes the kicking can be very subtle. And so the rates on this are very high over the age of 60. Um, and it fragments people's sleep and leads again to the problems of exhaustion, fatigue, sleepiness. It's also been associated with worse anxiety and depression. It's also associated with suicidal ideation. So anything that produces bad sleep seems to have this very obvious um, degradation of cognitive function in such a way that, you know, your mood or your attention or your concentration, it's all being attacked by poor sleep. Wow. And I hear a lot of people say they have restless legs. And again, I've heard these ads on TV for restless legs. Um, do I don't know what the medication is. I haven't paid much attention. Does it work? Do medications work? Well, restless legs is a very treatable condition. Not every single person will have a great treatment response, 
but the majority, the largest majority of people who are formally diagnosed with a condition, and usually their their best bet is being diagnosed at a sleep center, because those doctors have more um, work with the condition. So let me back up and point out, the largest contingent of people with restless legs and leg jerks, again, actually have undiagnosed sleep apnea or upper airway resistance. So at a sleep center, when you get tested in a lab where you can look at both the leg jerks and the breathing, the goal there is usually treat the breathing first because so many people will have their leg movement problems go away just because you treated the breathing. Nonetheless, there's plenty of people that still have the restless legs and the leg jerks, and they require a few options and medications. And these are uh, gabapentin-type drugs, dopamine-type drugs, opiate-type drugs. And the fascinating thing is that extremely low dosages of these drugs solve the problem. So, for example, if somebody was taking oxycodone to treat restless legs at night and leg jerks at night, their dosage could be 2.5 milligrams every night to sleep with, and that's it. Uh, and the same with other drugs like gabapentin, um, uh, Mirapex, Rapinerol. Many of these drugs have been tested in research studies. All of them are effective. They do have side effects, and there are certain controversies going on in the field of sleep medicine about which are the right ones to use and when. And that's, again, why I would say it's very important if you have that condition, work with a sleep center to get the proper care. One of the things that a lot of people complain about is I feel tired, but I can't go to sleep. What's that all about? That's tired and wired. And that gets into more of the psychological aspect of insomnia. And one of the pearls there is the recognition of why is it that an insomniac can't turn off their mind? Because that's the complaint you're alluding to. When the people say they can't really get sleepy and go to sleep, their mind is just too active. And the question becomes, why is that the case? Well, in part, it's a learned behavior where the individual has learned, for whatever reasons, that when they get into bed, their mind is just going to start racing. And so one of the simple techniques, it doesn't always work, but it's worth considering, is getting out of the bed and saying, wait a second, why am I lying here in bed when I'm tired and wired and I'm not going to go to sleep? Why don't I get out of bed, do something more relaxing, wait until my eyes get droopy and drowsy, then get back into bed and go to sleep. So that's a standard procedure, and it works for some people. But here's the deeper issue and the one that takes longer to work on, and yet if you understand it, you can always begin working on it yourself right away, and that is called the emotional processing angle of unfinished business. Most people who are in bed and they can't turn off the mind, it's telling them something happened during the day they have not effectively dealt with. And by effectively dealt with, it could be something like they didn't find the solution to a problem, 
or they had a conflict with somebody in their family or at work. And there's a residue of unsatisfied feeling. It could be anxiety. It could be anger. It could be any number of emotions. If the individual learns to pay attention to that during the daytime, they will discover they can turn off their mind at night because they can close out the day and look forward to the next day. Now, some people actually do have to go through extensive therapy to learn how to do that. But the basics of it is common sense, that if you go through your day and you're unsatisfied with something or you're conflicted with something, chances are very high. You're going to bring that with you to the bedroom and into bed, and that's going to make it difficult to turn off your mind. Wow. And that's funny. You say it's common sense because, and so many people thought about that, that there's an issue that you need to resolve, resolve it before you go to bed. And it's funny when I have a nightmare, it's usually, and it's not even a nightmare. It's not like somebody's coming after me to kill me or something, but I'm frustrated because I didn't finish something. I don't know what it is in the dream, but uh, <laughs> right, you know, whatever right. it was, I didn't finish it. So right. yes, we all have that dream. That's very common. <laughs> so we only have a couple minutes left. I do want to ask because a lot of people wonder about this. What about taking naps? Does that ruin your nighttime sleep? It can, but naps are a very peculiar, fascinating um, and somewhat bedeviling uh, behavior that a person has to pay close attention to to figure out how to do it correctly. Uh, there's an old standby that I've written about for years and others as well that says, you know, take the nap um, early and make it short. And if you do follow those instructions, you know, that generally speaking is a good framework. But the part that needs to be considered is, what are the circumstances under which you are dealing with the feeling of drowsiness and wanting to take a nap? Um, if you have to get in the car and drive and you're afraid that you're not going to have the energy, well, now we've got one of two options. You could take the nap and you might feel refreshed. But what if you take the nap and now you feel groggier because that can happen as well? So it takes time to sort out whether your napping behavior is really something that's going to be effective for you to do something during the day you're trying to achieve. And then, of course, you mentioned, will the nap affect daytime sleep? Absolutely it can. But here's another paradox. We teach insomniacs that sometimes, sometimes it's useful to learn how to nap because if you learn how to nap during the daytime, you're teaching yourself how to turn off your mind and that you're teaching yourself to tap into your sleepiness and your drowsiness. And so you're building confidence and saying, oh, if I can do this during the daytime, maybe I can learn to do this at night. So there's a lot of pros and cons about napping that are not well articulated in the scientific literature or even in the lay media who tries to cover this. And it often needs very individualized, you know, personally tailored medical care to help somebody learn when and how to take naps or just as you're suggesting, in some cases, don't take naps at all because it's going to completely 
ruin the sleep cycle. But altering your attitude to understand that a sense of humor, um, an ability to have some spirituality in your life and to recognize the power of prayer. And then last and not necessarily least, learning how to gain satisfaction and gratitude for the work that you're doing, whatever that work happens to be, whether you're getting paid or volunteer, getting that satisfaction, these kinds of attitudes make a huge difference in how somebody can turn off their mind at the end of the night and learn to function at a good level, even when they are struggling with poor sleep or when they're struggling to try to improve their sleep. And this attitude is something that I don't think is talked about as much in society as it should be. People expect, take this pill and your sleep will get better. Take this pill, your depression will get better. There's an awful lot of creative power within the human mind to redirect itself and train itself to have a very open attitude about what it can achieve. And by going in that direction, most people find success and certainly gains in their mental health and physical health. Wow. On that note, I just have to thank you so much for coming on the show, and I'd love to have you back again. Well, thank you. Boy, and I'd just like to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. I'd like you to, when you come to our page, look up at the top. We have something called a trending cloud. And that pops out all the news of the day and you can kind of click it on and see what's going on. And we still have our email feature where you can email us. First names are fine. Ask a question of the host or the guest and we'll get back to you with an answer. And our brand new feature is americaoutloud.shop. This has our books, the books that are guests have written other books of interest. It's got some of the medications we talk about from the wellness company, Cofix, that I talk about and use. And the best part when you get these things on our website is with, we keep things so simple here. There's a discount code that says out loud and there's various discounts. So check it out. I have and gotten several things from the website. So all I can say is thanks again. And whether you agree with what you've heard or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.